Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Whitney Phillips about her new book, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Mapping the Relationship Between Online Trolling and Mainstream Culture. Whitney Phillips is a lecturer in the Department of Communications at Humboldt State University. Whitney Phillips, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you for having me. So online trolling does not have the best reputation. What did you see this topic to warrant such an in-depth study? Well, when I first started my PhD program in 2008, I thought I was going to be researching um, political humor. And because it was 2008, um, I was spending lots and lots of time online and was encountering these behaviors that I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to talk about them. I didn't know how to think about them, but they were interesting because they defied all of my attempts to make sense of what I was seeing. And those, um, Conversations and those interests eventually led me to 4chan's B-Board. That was where a lot of activity seemed to be happening. A lot of references on other sites, even political sites, were, were referencing back to this one space. And so I decided to check it out. And it was even stranger than all of the very strange stuff I was seeing, just focused specifically on politics. And so I decided to try to write my way into an explanation, thinking that it would just be a one-off project. I had no idea where it was going to go. But that proved to be so interesting that I kept writing and kept failing to adequately describe things until six years later, I had a book in my hands. So we'll get into the details of how this trolling phenomenon evolved. But I guess starting with that answer, is there a particular reason why that 4chan b-board became so notorious and why, why it drew so many of the early kind of online trolling denizens? It's so hard to say why, retrospectively, um, why something ended up being popular. I think 4chan in a lot of ways was the right place at the right time. A lot of very similar behaviors had been um, kind of, uh, they certainly weren't new behaviors. There had been similar stuff happening all over the internet for decades at that point. Um, but it was just this culmination of a lot of previous behaviors and people coming together, more people having access. I, it's It's hard to say, but for whatever reason, 4chan became just this hotbed of trolling activity and harnessed a lot of this existing energy. And then what was important about 4chan is that it created, um, well, it didn't create, but its users created this sense of identity around um, the concept of anonymous, which has evolved in subsequent years. But at the time was this point of identification, this point of pride, that it, it was something that people could identify with. So they felt like they were part of a community, despite, you know, people's assumptions that maybe it was antisocial or, you know, all of that stuff, that, that they were having fun together. And they were having fun together on this particular site, and they were creating lots of content that other people on other sites found interesting and were engaging with, too. And so it was just this perfect storm of historical precedent and just the personalities involved in the way that they came together to create something that was bigger than themselves, that was not positive in any obvious sense of the term, but for them was something that they really, participants really got something out of it. And so that's why it, it exploded in popularity in the way that it did. Now you talk about in your first answer that this, you were actually looking at a different topic, then you kind of came into the world of trolling, and six years later you have this book. Uh, the book's great, and I was really impressed that you were able to even complete it, because as you point out in your book, this antisocial reputation these trollers have, these commenters have, might lead one to think, well, how much access could anybody really get simply because they want to stay anonymous to some degree, and that they 
their online persona isn't a particularly friendly one. Uh, could you talk about some of the obstacles you encountered just trying to write this book? Yeah, the most obvious and conspicuous um, and initially frustrating obstacle was was anonymity itself, that the vast majority, vast majority, I don't want to say all because I'm sure there was one or two people who weren't, but the vast majority of, of participants were anonymous. And so the question was, well, how do you, how, how do you, how do you study them? How do you ask questions of anonymous participants? Because on 4chan in particular, well, and to specify the B board, because that's where I, that's where I focused my research. If I were to reach out, if I were to respond to something that some anonymous poster posted and said, Oh, that's very interesting. Could you please expand on what you meant? I'm an, I'm a researcher. First of all, I would get trolled. Second of all, I would have no way of confirming that the person responding was the initial person who was posting. So there were all these kinds of things that made more traditional ethnographic research just impossible. So instead of trying to work against the contours of that space and put myself um, in a potentially precarious, maybe even dangerous position by outing myself as a researcher and saying, whoever wants to come talk to me, here's my personal email, which would not have been a good idea. I decided to work with the contours of the space. And so I engaged primarily in participant observation on 4chan because that, because the space, it made more sense to approach things in that particular way. It was safer. It meant that I was going to get a better sense of the contours of what I was seeing. Um, and so that's, that's how I approached 4chan's B-board. Now, Facebook, where I also conducted some of my research, Facebook's contours required that I interact more one-to-one with participating trolls, that I would not have been just a participant, or I would not not have been able to be simply a participant observer on Facebook. I wouldn't wouldn't have been able to get the information I needed to, to do my analysis. So I had to essentially be friends with, in the Facebook sense, so you can't see me, but I'm making scare quotes, but be friends with the trolls that I encountered there so that I could follow what they were doing and follow along with whatever conversations and be able to see the relationship between news stories in Australia, for example, and how they kind of made their way into the American troll space. So the way Facebook was set up, it just, it allowed for a different kind of research. Um, both sets have its benefits and its drawbacks in the sense of, you know, when you're doing participant observation, you're less, uh, you're less likely to be harmed over the course of your research or have someone come after you, but you also don't get the same kind of access to the trolls. When you do have access to the trolls, that's great, but then you have to deal with the fact that you can't, you still don't know who they are. They're still, they may have pseudonyms, but you don't know who they are offline. I don't, didn't know who these trolls were offline. Um, so I couldn't verify the things they were saying, even basic stuff like, what they did for a living or how old they were, that you could kind of speculate and you could kind of tell when something was a particularly outrageous lie. But small lies, there would be no way to verify. So I had access to them, but they're slippery little fish. And so I didn't have as much access as I would have liked. So it was just constant, regardless of how I approached the trolls and what community I was looking at and all of those things. There was always something that made the research weird and made me made me worry and furrow my brow a lot. That was basically, if I had to summarize the process of writing the book, it would be worrying and furrowing my brow. So now let's talk about the research itself. Uh, one of the interesting things in the book is you talk about the fact that all trolls do have that antisocial 
persona and how often vilified in the press that in fact there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship between that between the trolling community and the journalism industry particularly among some of the more sensationalistic outlets of journalism could you talk a little bit about that relationship sure that the assumption is that trolls are fundamentally aberrational right that they're they're outside they're outside the mainstream they're outside the norm they're the bad guys and they are clearly and easily uh uh, separable from more mainstream behaviors and certainly more mainstream personalities. But the more research I did, the more I realized that rhetoric utilized by trolls um, is often directly, uh, it, it either echoes or directly replicates rhetoric of sensationalist news outlets, particularly around, particularly around disaster narratives, that trolls are fetishizing a story, they're focusing on and, and exploiting the human interest angles to get attention and generate lulls, a certain kind of laughter um, that trolls trade in, essentially. Um, you know, that they were using these stories for their own benefit. And although their benefit was laughter and was to just amuse themselves, it was really similar to the benefit generated by and pursued by these sensationalist media outlets that the same kind of focus on the human interest elements, same exploitation of those human interest elements, the same fetishizing of a particular story, the same attempt to needle the audience to try to generate the strongest possible reaction, that was also there with sensationalist outlets. It's just that instead of being motivated by lulls, by laughter, by amusement, they were motivated by advertising re revenue, and that's a that's a big that's a big difference. But the rhetorical similarities um, were often so striking that sometimes you could not tell the difference between what you know a, tr a troll a troll made bit of content and then something that was actually said by an actual journalist on an actual website. It was really it was very striking when I first noticed those connections and. Trolls were delighted, more than delighted, not just to recognize those connections themselves, but also to exploit them. Because as it turns out, talking about trolls, particularly in highly sensationalist language, referring to them as sociopaths and monsters, all this stuff, that also happens to be very good clickbait. So trolls benefited from media sensationalism. Sensationalist outfit, uh, media outlets benefited from trolls sensationalism and they actually worked together quite well. Um, which is, and so it became this sort of echo chamber of trolling where you couldn't really tell the difference who was trolling who at a certain point. People that know trolls know that sometimes they can get extremely graphic in their descriptions of things or threats. But in the book, I found it very interesting that some of them see themselves in the company of philosophers such as Schopenhauer and Socrates. Uh, how do they come to this? And do you think these comparisons are warranted with, again, I don't want to extrapolate within the entire trolling community, but can you see when those, when those comparisons they made on themselves, did you think, okay, I can kind of see what they're talking about? That is a, that is a difficult question. I, I think that they, many of them really did situate themselves within the Western tradition. And you can certainly see connections between sort of idealized Western rhetoric, um, which is often focused on sort of dominance, dominating your opponent, and then trolling rhetoric. I do think that they fit nicely within conversations about the way that people are trained to argue with each other in a Western context. So there's definitely precedent for the behaviors. I'm reluctant to uh, accept wholesale the kind of self-aggrandizing assumption that a lot of trolls make that they're 
doing the Lord's work, so to speak. And many of them not only compare themselves to, you know, established philosophers and then, and then use that to sort of justify their behavior, sort of if Socrates did it, then it's, I, I should be able to do it too. Um, but they also, uh, end up framing a lot of their behaviors pedagogically. So, so they, they look at what they do and they essentially think, many of them think, and again, these are just the people that I spoke to, but they often make the claim that they're actually helping people because they're training people how to behave appropriately on the internet. They're training people how to, uh, show, how not to show emotion because from their perspective, emotion is, you know, suggestive of weakness that anything sentimental needs to be squashed, that you need to fight back against anything essentially that's gendered female, that that's, that's what they're going for. So they're, they're boundary policing rhetorical styles in a highly gendered way. And then many of them believe that the people that they target actually should be thanking them for teaching them how to, how to be a person on the internet, that there's this really strong idea trolls have that, that, that they're doing, that they're, what they're doing is not just okay, but helpful. And again, you know, I think that's very interesting from a research perspective. And I certainly, you know, I, I wrote about that quite a bit in the book, but whether or not I would go that next step and say that they deserve, they deserve to pat themselves on the back for that. I, I don't think they do, but they certainly believe it. And then thinking about the ways in which those attitudes fit really nicely within larger um, cultural context. That's again, that's sort of where the focus is. And that's, that's where I put my attention in the book itself. Uh, did you think that any of them or the ones you talked to recognize the irony and not to give away a lot of the book, but it, it, near the end, you talk about how the, the world of trolling has changed over the last five years. And in some instances, some of the people you spoke to spoke rather wistfully about, um, the changes that had happened. Uh, was the, do you really think they realized that there was a bit of irony that they were, they were like showing sentiment in towards a, an action in which sentiment should have been never been? Oh, there, yeah, the thing that's funny about trolls is that so as much as they fight back against sentimentality and attachment, they're very attached to their own worldviews. They're very attached to this, uh, their assumptions about, about the world and about how other people should behave and what's appropriate and what's not. So they're highly attached. Uh, to these things that they then attack other people for being attached to. Um, so yeah, of course there's, there's definitely, um, there's some irony in that. And the idea of sort of looking back wistfully at, at like the golden, the golden era of trolling, I, I suppose if you're a troll and you thought that that was really fun, you know, it's sort of like looking back on high school, I guess. Um, but you know, the, the internet, the internet has changed. Internet culture has changed so significantly over the last five years. Um, they, the subcultural space that they once occupied. So they were the only people making certain kinds of jokes. They were the only people engaging in certain kinds of behaviors. Those have just become more widespread. And I don't just mean, I don't mean trolling itself, but memes and different, different stuff that used to really speak very strongly to trolling subculture. That's definitely that's shifted and has been adopted by a wider population. So in some ways, they're also lamenting the mainstreaming of what they might call internet culture or meme culture or however you want to put it. Um, and there's, and there's definitely irony in that, in that too, because as you say, as you point out, that's, that's another point of sentiment and of attachment. So finally, I mean, given the fact that a lot of that subculture has now been mainstreamed, 
is trolling still, I want to say, the potent anti-social force it was when one thinks, say, five years ago? Or has that mainstreaming, I want to say, denuded the venom so much that now it's almost hard to tell whether trolling is going on or somebody's being ironic in trolling? I'm not sure if that makes a lot of sense, but I guess, has the potency left because of this mainstreaming? Well, I mean, and that that gets to the question, well, what do you mean when you say the word troll? So in this book, I'm focusing specifically and say at the beginning of the book, um, anticipating these objections, really. Um, but I'm focusing on subcultural trolling that emerged on and around 4chan's B-board during this particular period of time. During that time, trolling meant a very particular thing to the people engaging in those behaviors. That sense of the word troll has definitely, I don't know if I want to say become diluted, but it's been, it's been uh, absorbed into sort of wider, more mainstream cultural practices. So that isn't that you don't see that with as much frequency anymore. You don't, you can't be sure you're looking at a troll just because they post a meme somewhere that that just means someone's been to Facebook before. So in that sense, things really are different, but the way that people use the term now often will subsume everything essentially that's annoying and terrible on the internet. So the, the specific use of the word that that specific community has undergone change, but the term itself, trolling itself has ballooned up and it's not that the venom has decreased over time. I, the venom has, has in, I mean, I don't know if it's increased either. It certainly remained just as venomous as before. It's just that oftentimes now when people refer to trolling, what they're actually talking about is violent misogyny, right? That, that all of these really problematic um, sort of expressions of cultural inequity and bigotry. So, sexism and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia and racism and all of those things, instead of people calling it what it is, which is all of the words I just described, they refer to it as trolling. So the term has started to take on much more stuff that's not subculturally bounded, but instead just refers to terrible things on the internet. And I actually, I think that is a a, a dangerous move because what that risks is sort of whitewashing the social realities of bigotry. And instead, it places it in the context of trolling, which still often has at least some connotations of playfulness, that you're just trolling, for example. And when you're engaging in violently misogynist behaviors, like a lot of the participants in Gamergate, for example, I was appalled when people were trying to frame that as trolling. That was misogyny. Call it misogyny. So it's actually that the term trolling has become almost too unwieldy because it now subsumes so much more stuff than when I was focusing intently on these communities between 2008 and 2013-ish. Whitney Phillips, the author of This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Mapping the Relationship Between Online Trolling and Mainstream Culture. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you so much. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at mitpress. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2015, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.